it isn't working. I said a couple days ago the Chinese were going to update us with statistics which would tell us about their efforts to stabilize the currency, the financial system, the entire Chinese economy, its contributions to the global system. And it is not working. We've got update on bank lending, we've got trade statistics, but more than that, we've got we got the background situation to really understand and work through in order to figure out what it is the government really is prioritizing and why they're operating the way that they are. What is it about stability that is so enthralled authorities in Beijing? And when you step back and look at the situation from the big picture, it really does make sense. In another video I did just last week, about the silent depression, the Chinese are an expression of this silent depression. They are an example of the downside potential of having been through one for as long as they have. And so the more the Chinese do to try to stabilize the situation, the more it is a reflection of both the long run and short run considerations under that silent depression umbrella. The Chinese situation is unstable because of economic circumstances, but also social and political issues too. Just a couple months ago, remember the Chinese stopped reporting their youth unemployment rate because it had risen to a record high. In fact, it's been rising steadily for the last several years. Well, a comment made by Andy G, who was an independent analyst over in China to the, B to the BBC, really drove home, I think, the point that we're trying to make here. He said that young people in China needed to adjust their expectations on the types of jobs available to them. Around 70% of young people in China now want to go to university and so expect to get a white collar job afterwards. They want desk jobs, staring at computers, but that's not possible. And the reason it's not possible is because of the global silent depression that we're living in. So we have that background plus the increasing pressures on China around the rest of the world, all of it in 2023 heading into 2024. China is again, a reflection of the global economic macro money conditions. And it tells us something important, not just about China's ability to impact that positively or negatively, but what's happening here as well, or in your local neck of the woods. Before we get into all that though, as you know, I'm Jeff, this is Eurodollar University. We are going to have a webinar at Eurodollar University on Friday, this coming Friday, October 20th. It's at 6.30 p.m. Eastern time. I still believe it's Eastern Daylight Time. I'll get an answer to that eventually. 6.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. And the topic, given the feedback from most people, I think we need to go over why the dollar remains the dominant currency because it's not actually the dollar. And why is it that this other currency, this other currency system, the euro dollar, is what people are maybe attempting to replace and understanding why they're doing it also gives us an answer about whether or not they can. So we're going to talk about dollar dominance or really euro dollar dominance, how appropriate for euro dollar university. Come and join us for answers on the dollar question Friday evening, 6.30 p.m. Eastern time. Sign up at the link in the description to this video. I hope to see you there. Euro dollar to dominance also explains the silent depression, also China's predicament. The Chinese aren't trying to replace the dollar because of political considerations. They're trying to live in this euro dollar world that doesn't operate in the same way. 
So before getting to the current updated statistics, let's step back a little bit in time and do our background research here, our background review. It all goes back to really Mao Zedong in the, in the 1950s and 60s, a great leap forward, all that. But fast forward to the 1970s when Mao finally passed away, Deng Xiaoping becomes not the supreme leader, but the, the unchallenged leader of the Communist Party. And he realized that something had to change in China. They could not continue on. The Communist Party would be doomed. So they started to experiment with limited forms of capitalism. And throughout the 1980s, as their neighbors to the north and the Soviet Union experienced more and more problems, by the early 1990s, when the Soviet Union collapsed, Deng realized they couldn't just experiment with limited forms of cap capitalism or free markets, these special economic zones they set up. China was going to have to completely transform its entire society from top to bottom, starting with the economy. And in order to do so would require a lot of pain. They were going to have to impose a lot of top-down edicts on, a, on a, basically everything, not just the economy, but political and social order. They were going to have to take a billion people out of subsistence agriculture existence and put them into factories. But the, the promise was you have to put up with pollution, you have to put up with authoritarianism, you have to put up with a number of strict controls on migration and movement. Basically, some of the worst stuff you could imagine, certainly for our, from our Western perspective, you have to put up with all that. But here's the, here's the payoff. What Deng was offering, and then Zhang Zemin through his three represents, what they were saying was, you give us the, uh, you, you stick with us here. We're going to do this transformation, the, the very transformation that communists and socialists have been dreaming of doing ever since Marx and Engels and before them. We're going to transform Chinese society, and it's going to be rough. There's going to be a lot of crap to put up with. But if you do, the payoff will be, if not you, very likely your children in China are going to be able to go off to one of these glittering cities and work in a decent factory and have a wealthy, modest, middle-class lifestyle, a real Western middle-class lifestyle of relative comfort and ease, particularly in contrast to the subsistence agricultural existence that most of Chinese had been living under for however long, centuries, millennia. That was the trade-off. Let us do our transformation, put up with all of it. And it's going to be pretty, it's going to be pretty rough, but it's going to be worth it when we get all of the subsistence farmers into the cities and become this biggest middle-class socialist paradise that you've ever seen. And back to Zhang's three represents, what he was saying was, if you let us do that, at some point when we complete this industrialization, we complete the economic transformation, we will have what, again, socialists have dreamed of from the very beginning. We'll be able to turn everything back over to a more democratic form of socialism. That was the third represent, a majority interest. Because once all the Chinese former subsistence farmers or their children become middle-class city-dwelling participants, they will, they will recognize just how beneficial it was to have handed over control to their Communist Party overlords. But that was always the trade-off. That was always the promise. Give us the keys to the economy and we'll give you this, this tremendously uh, positive future. The problem was the Chinese only got partway through that transformation before... That little thing in 2008 interrupted them. 
that subprime mortgage fiasco in the United States because it wasn't a subprime mortgage fiasco. It was a global monetary crisis that wasn't a one-off. It was a breakdown in the monetary system, the world's reserve currency system, as we'll talk about at this upcoming webinar, a breakdown of the world's reserve currency system, that event that, that knocked the entire global economy off its prior trend and has made it unable to go back. So you think about that from China's perspective, what they're trying to do here to bring everybody into this middle-class lifestyle, but you only got about maybe a little more than halfway there. Statistics vary. Some say about 700 million Chinese move from these rural agricultural small farms to the city. 700 million, that's massive transformation. That's a testament to the power of the Euro dollar's ability to marry all of the positive trends of globalization together and take advantage and create some real legitimate global prosperity. China is maybe the best example of it, but it's also the best example of the dangers because 700 million isn't all the way there. And again, estimates vary, but according to some current ones for this year, 2023, about 40% of China's labor force, which amounts to around roughly 800 million. So we're talking about 300 some million in China, roughly the population of the United States that are still there doing subsistence agriculture, still there doing the hard backbreaking work for very limited gain, still there experiencing the pollution, the authoritarian control, the migration controls, all of that. They're still there doing that, except they don't yet realize, as the, uh, the commentator to the BBC was saying, the door might be slamming shut on China's transformation. Xi Jinping's task here is to slowly let out the, let the cat out of the bag that China, its growth paradigm is done. It doesn't have any more room and it's not going to make any more room for all of those hundreds of millions who have left behind. And that's just a number of workers. You talk about their families. We're in the neighborhood of half a billion people who are waiting for their turn to go to the go to the economically transformed cities or have their children go there except there is no more opportunity the economy doesn't work so if you're Xi Jinping's you're in his position what are you going to do well you're going to prioritize stability and stability in all of its for economic stability social stability political stability. So at least you can say that we're keeping the lights on, we're keeping everything, we're keeping our options open while we clamp down on society, getting them ready for the realization that we're all filled up over here in the cities and the middle class. Those, the half a billion people that were left behind, you're going to have to make peace with the fact that you've been left behind. That's a terrifying prospect for any system, let alone one that is so top heavy like the Chinese. So economic stability to at least make sure that we can have political stability in China. Make sure that we have just enough economic growth so that those who have made it to the cities don't feel threatened that their middle class lifestyle they have obtained isn't going to go away and they're going to have to go back to where they came from. 
So stability on the economic side is just keeping the lights on over there on the East Coast in the major cities, in the, in the uh, parts of the economy that have been transformed. And then political stability is about, first of all, keeping those people happy and placated. And second of all, doing something about all those who have been left behind. It's an enormous, an enormously tricky proposition for the Chinese and the implications for the rest of the world are as equally enormous, not just in terms of potential spillover of political instability to Chinese neighbors, but think about it just in pure economic terms. How much of the global economic situation was benefited as those 700 million Chinese migrated to the cities, cities that had to be built from scratch? An enormous amount of global economic growth came from this transformation finance and funded by a euro dollar system that was actually working. And now the Chinese are saying it's not working. We're just trying to keep everybody at a minimum here. It's not just, the implications are not just local in China. They are again, a reflection on conditions and potential around the rest of the world, economic, financial, monetary, and political potential. The recent update from the, the statistics from China Let's start with bank lending because that's an important one. It's one that people have been focused on. And it's also one that um, the government has made a little bit more of it, paid a little more attention to as well. You know, they, they've cut interest rates more recently, though not by a whole lot. The one-year loan prime rate was, was reduced by 10 basis points in June. And then again in August by only 10 basis points rather than 15 basis points. So uh, that was... The PVC lowered the MLF. And then the five-year loan prime rate, that was, that was lowered by 10 basis points in June as well, but it wasn't lowered at all in August quite, uh, for the first time ever, the loan prime rate didn't follow the MLF. What that suggested was that banks are being more and more cautious. Despite the, despite the government's best efforts and the statistics from the PBOC on bank lending in particular, they echo that fact because it has become a fact. Total RMB loans in China grew by just 10.9% year over year in the month of September. These are the latest numbers and 10.9% sounds like a terrific figure, but that's actually the lowest uh, year over year rate in the total stock of RMB loans throughout the Chinese economy in more than 20 years. In fact, that ties April and August of 2022, lockdown months for the lowest year-over-year -year change in total bank loans outstanding in China in more than 20 years. That's September of 2023. Despite all of the alleged stimulus, despite reopening, despite lower interest rates, bank lending isn't coming back. It's not accelerating. It's not even stabilizing. And as you can see in the chart I'm showing you here, it has decelerated pretty substantially since March and April. There are those two months again, they keep coming up. Perhaps more important than that, when we talk about immediate dangers in China, that's the real estate sector. In the real estate sector, there's not much evidence that Chinese efforts are bearing any fruit there as well. Despite the moderate cut in the loan prime rate, despite the you know uh, aid to first time home buyers, New household loans in China were only 544 billion RMB in the month of September. Now that's better than certainly August and especially uh, July, but 544 billion for the month of September is the worst month of September for household loans in over a decade. 
It was $650 billion in September 2022. By comparison, $789 billion in the long-forgotten days of 2021, $961 billion during the initial reopening phase in 2020, September of 2020. And you go back to before that, 2018 and 2019, not exactly great years for China housing. It's $750 billion each month, each of those two months, in new household loans. We're at $544 billion in the month of September. So despite all of the efforts, it's just not paying off. The real estate woes are going to continue. And one reason they're going to continue, of course, is the external pressures on China's economy. It's not just the internal dynamics. Again, the, the symptoms and the impacts and the consequences of the silent depression and it's extending into 16 years now, it's 17th year. Exports into China continue to fall. External problems on the Chinese economy, according to the latest data from the General Administration of Customs, Exports fell 6.2% year over year in the month of September, which was moderately better than August. But when you look at the third quarter as a, as a whole, exports were down 10.8%. These are dollar volumes compared to the, to the, yes, the uh, third quarter of 2022. And 10.8%, that's among one of the worst quarters in all of Chinese modern, modern history. It's, it's, there's only five quarters that were worse, and that was the first quarter of 2020, the first quarter of 2016, and the first three quarters of 2009. That's it. So Chinese exports in the third quarter, despite this, the, ability, the, the effort, not the ability, the effort to try to stabilize the currency, the efforts to try to stabilize the economy, despite the resilient economy that's claimed across the rest of the Western world, this stable U.S. system, not according to China. Not only are exports, exports falling by dollar value, exports to the United States were down another 9% year over year in September. U.S. demand is not coming back. It's not actually resilient. European exports, exports from China to Europe, down 11.6% year over year. It was equally challenging on the other side in terms of Chinese imports, because again, China is an important junction between demand coming from the Western world, developed world, manufacturing ability in China, investment, transforming the Chinese economy and importing a whole lot of material into China in order to build itself out as well as build up these, these goods that get shipped around the world. And imports continue to slide. They were down 6.2% year over year by dollar value in the month of September. For the third quarter as a whole, imports were down 9.4% at a slightly accelerating rate. You can see it China's economy, it's not just about reopening, it's not just about lockdowns, it's about all of these tr struggles that we continue to see here. It's about the silent depression. It's about how the silent depression and the euro dollar breakdown in 2008 caused the Chinese to look at their situation to completely change, to realize they didn't have the ability to finish the job that Deng had started. In fact, this was one thing that was rumored last month, if you recall, when Xi Jinping was conspicuously absent from the G20 summit in India. There was this report that he had been scolded by party leaders for how he was running the country. And he retorted, allegedly, that Deng and Zhang and Hu had left him with, quote, all of these unresolved issues. And those unresolved issues are the Eurodollar system's ability to create globalized wealth and prosperity, especially for China, but only up until 2008. They left him with an economy that still needed to be transformed, but had fallen 
300 million, 500, 500 million, half a billion people short of being transformed. And with the silent depression continuing to con continuing to continue here, China doesn't have the ability to finish the job. That has economic implications in China as well as around the rest of the world that depended upon China to build itself out toward that transformation. It has political and social implications, not just local, but also international. It is a reflection of the silent depression. As rate of change in the economy goes down and stays down, rate of change in politics and society, whether we like it or not, those tend to go way up. And if you're Xi Jinping, that's the worst case scenario. So stability, let's stabilize the situation in China so that we don't have the growing rate of change in politics. Then maybe it spills over elsewhere. If you want to see more about China's woes and how it really got to this situation, check out the video linked below me. As always, I thank you very much for joining me. Remember the webinar, that's Friday. I hope to see you there. Thank you, Eurodollar University subscribers, our Eurodollar University members, some of whom you see over here. And until next time, take care.